Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian from the Farnborough International Air Show. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Senate is working on its version of the National Defense Authorization Act as the appropriations process moves ahead that would give the Biden administration some $50 billion additional dollars for defense. President Biden returned to Washington after his trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia as Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said what everyone always suspected, that Moscow plans to take more of Ukraine than just Donbass, Luhansk, and Crimea, and a corridor connecting Crimea to Russia. The day after, the EU again accused Moscow of using energy as a weapon and called on members to better plan for energy shortages come winter, Russia restored gas flows demonstrating Vladimir Putin's leverage over Europe. This just after the Russian leader returned from a rogue summit in Tehran, meeting with Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Beijing continues to help Moscow and benefit from Russian technology as China continues lockdowns as authorities fight a new COVID variant as the giant country's economy continues to struggle. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations, Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow has been sponsored by Farnborough International. Check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Good to have you all back together again. Michael, welcome back and start us off as you always do. Uh, the Senate uh, is working on its version of the National Defense Authorization Act. We've got uh, an appropriations process also ongoing. Give us a sense of where we are on those two polls. Sure, the things continue to move forward. So uh, Senate had marked up their bill about a month or two ago. Uh, they finally, as you know, their, their process is much more closed and secret than the House side. So they finally posted their bill uh, to the public yesterday. And as we uh, were told earlier, it's $45 billion above uh, the president's uh, budget request in order to account for inflation and the implementation of the national defense strategy. So the top line coming out of the Senate right now, when you include not only the DOD, but defense items in Department of Energy and other uh, departments is just over $857 uh, billion. So uh, we were all hoping to get some floor action on that in July. It's not going to happen because things we'll talk about later that the Senate's working on. But we do anticipate floor action on the NDAA uh, in September and then a conference shortly thereafter. Uh, as far as appropes, uh, is concerned, appropriations, so the House voted yesterday on six uh, appropriations bills, uh, which is usually half the total because there's 12 appropriations bills in total. These were considered, uh, you know, with the Democrats, the easier ones. 
uh, all of which are not, you know, not, not, do not include defense and do not include homeland security. However, they were passed on a party line vote. So these bills are really not going anywhere and they do increase spending uh, for non-defense, you know, domestic discretionary spending, where at the same time, the bill that the uh, House uh, Democrats have voted marked up for defense uh, marks up to the president's number. So all this will hang out there until after the election uh, and a budget deal can be reached. Now, we do expect next week for the Senate um, uh, appropriations committees to post their bills, including the defense bill, even though they've not gotten a markup yet, they are going to post a bill. And we do expect that to be higher than uh, the president's budget request, but probably initially not as high as what the Senate marked up to. Because remember, the Senate increased spending by $45 billion. And my understanding right. is the appropriators in the Senate look at that as the floor, but they don't want to add all that money right now because they know the House is going to want some of that money in conference. So if they add, let's say, 45 right. billion, and then they go to conference, they're going to have to throw some things overboard to make uh, up for some House priorities. So I would expect that number that to be somewhere between 20 and 30 billion dollars above the president's budget request, knowing that in the end, the final budget deal will be probably 50 to 60 billion dollars above the president's budget request. And um, so, so where do you think we end up in this? Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to bring Dove in here uh, in, in a moment. Where do you think we end up? What's what's the hard number, right? I mean, we've been all over the map, as our audience knows. Um, you know, you started that crazy hair running with 100 billion, which, which is true, and we were hearing mm-hmm. that from members, right? So it's not like you right. pulled it out of your ear, um, right. right? Where where do we end up? Do you think what's what, as a betting man? Uh, I really think that we end up uh, at least 50 billion uh, over the president's budget okay. request, maybe as high as 60. That's a nice neighborhood. Uh, yes. Dove, uh, Dove, right? It's not as, not as posh a neighborhood as 100 billion, uh, but it, uh, you know, that, that, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get you some coffee. Um, Dove, where, where do you think we end up budgetarily and what do you think uh, the big challenges are going to be? Well, the number may be less important than the rate of inflation. Uh, the latest uh, reprogramming, uh, which means moving money around from the one, one budget item to a budget category to another, which was sent to the Hill, I think asked for $800 million to be moved around. And that was based on a lower estimate than currently the inflation is running. Now, next year, of course, the administration assumed something slightly over 2%. You can argue whether it's 2.2 or 2.4, but it didn't what 9.1. And so even if there is 50 or $60 billion, the real question is going to be how much of it is a real increase. And we just don't know that because people are talking on the one hand, inflation going up still or at least holding Uh, And on the other hand, of a possible recession. And I don't know how that plays out. So there are a lot of uh, what you might call exogenous variables that aren't inherent to defense itself, but are certainly going to make life much more complicated for those who want to manage the defense budget and the defense program. Michael, walk us through. I mean, I'm going to ask this against my better judgment, but alas, it is. Um, I mean, you would know where we are on uh, chips and uh, Useka. Uh, where are we on reconciliation and where are we on uh, build back uh, better? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know why any Democrat expected a deal or for Joe Manchin to go along with anything, because uh, although you know, the more he negotiates, the more he does the Lucy and the football routine, the more it helps him in his state. So I, I don't you know, and his, his position is clear. Where putting all of that aside, where 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 are we now 
in this very important morass that's actually gumming up the works on a whole bunch of other uh, uh, items. E even though I think Democrats were trying to work a separate uh, climate bill with him and, and that too failed, right? So I mean, it's that, that, yeah, that's another layer of complexity now uh, to this dynamic. That's true. And uh, it's even though it's failed in the short run, the Democrats don't think that that climate bill has failed in the long run. And I'll get to that in a second. So first, you know, we've, we've talked, as you mentioned, you know, almost every week about, you know, Chips Yusika and that, that that conference was moving along pretty slowly, even though they were making progress. And then, of course, uh, the Republicans led by Mitch McConnell said they wanted to tank Yusika because the Democrats were going forward uh, with reconciliation. However, uh, as we've talked about for months, we always felt that Chips would be pulled out separately and either passed on its own or added uh, to an end-of-year omnibus appropriations bill. Uh, as we mentioned last week, you know, the Secretaries of Commerce and Defense weighed in very heavily with the Hill on the importance of getting chips done. So the Republicans agreed to let chips go separately. However, um, you know, se several senators led by Todd Young you know, said, hey, wait, you know, we spent all this time uh, you know, conferencing you know, competes Yusika. Uh, why don't we at least take some of the things that we've already agreed to and add that in to the chips legislation instead of throwing all this work out the window. And frankly, I think he's got a very good point. And it looks like there's bipartisan support uh, in the Senate to do that. Uh, so instead of a $52 billion bill that would just focus on grants and incentives for the American semiconductor industry, it looks like we're going to get a $250 billion bill, which will also include tens of billions of dollars for the National Science Foundation, uh, the Commerce Department, the Energy Department, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, provisions uh, affecting NASA. Uh, the legislation is going to include the guardrails that Republicans were looking for. I talked to Republican leadership earlier this week. They were concerned about guardrails in the legislation. Uh, so they want to make sure that none of the funds can be used to underwrite stock buybacks or on facilities in China or any other foreign countries of concern. Uh, so that legislation is coming together. I, I would expect the Senate to vote and pass that next week, uh, either Wednesday or Thursday. And then the House uh, is going to be leaving at the end of next week and that they will pass it uh, before they leave. So I'm optimistic that this is actually going to get done and will be sent to the president's desk by the end of next week. Now, wow. as, as far as uh, reconciliation, build, build Back Better go, um, you know, we, we probably about earlier this year, we talked about the mechanics of reconciliation and how the Democrats worked with the parliamentarian to get the parliamentarian to agree that they could actually amend the reconciliation package. We give them two vehicles. Right. So what the Democrats are going to, in a Senate are going to try and do before they leave, now that the Senate is going to be in for an extra week than the House is, is to pass a scaled down reconciliation package just focusing on health care, where uh, one will deal with prescription drugs, letting Medicare negotiate for prescription drugs which the CBO says will save uh, about $280 billion in spending, which will allow them to have the money to offset a two-year extension on the uh, ACA, Affordable Care Act subsidies. So a very limited reconciliation package really could get done uh, uh, sometime this summer. Now, uh, the larger one uh, that, you know, that you mentioned earlier about uh, Manchin keeps you know, maybe changing the goalposts on, that the, the real deadline uh, for that is September because the fiscal year ends at the end of September. So the Democrats are right. still holding out hope that they can do another reconciliation package focusing on the tax increases and the climate uh, in September. Now, I have talked to multiple uh, House Democrats this week, and I said, are you really going to raise taxes uh, a month and a half before the election in September? And every one of them said, no, <laughs> they are not. <laughs> Wow. So. <laughs> well, listen, that's 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 progress, right? That's yes. progress. 
Right. So uh, I think even though we'll hear a lot of talk about this, I do not anticipate a second reconciliation package getting done in September. And remember, September is going to be focused on one, we need Senate NDA to pass, and they're going to have to pass the continuing resolution because appropriations bills will not be done then. And we expect the CR to go through the end of Thanksgiving. And uh, let me ask you uh, one more uh, question because I'm uh, I'm about to uh, give uh, Jim Townsend uh, a bit of a workout uh, because obviously we're we're in Ukraine territory and my uh, transition question is um, Olina uh, Zelensky or Zelenska, uh, the first lady of Ukraine and uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky's wife uh, was in person up on the hill hosted by Nancy Pelosi uh, and spoke to House members. Very powerful address calling for more help for Ukraine. And obviously, U.S. weapons are making a massive difference now. And indeed, some speculation the Ukrainians might be able to uh, conduct a counterattack uh, at, at some point. Is this moving the needle, right? I mean, is support still strong uh, for uh, Ukraine up on the hill? Or, uh, you know, is, is interest waning uh, in this topic as far as you're concerned? Because if you look at European polling, it's actually remarkably positive, right? I mean, more than 70% or about 70% of Germans, if I understand correctly, according to one poll, still support uh, Ukraine, even if it means paying more at home and and having some hardship. Uh, Is this moving any needles at all? Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, And, you know, a lot of members, you know, were took great interest in in, in what you had to say. Uh, And, I, you know, I spent some time with a lot of different members on armed services uh, and appropriations this week, and this subject came up several times. Um, there is still strong uh, bipartisan support, but there is a lot of concern about interest waning over time. I mean, we, we have a hard time, you know, uh, being focused on one thing and we get distracted by other items. Um, spending, you know, is going to be more of an issue next year. And there's a lot of concern about the success of the Russian disinformation campaign uh, in this country and how many of the media outlets pick this stuff up and for, in, in furtherance of the Russian objectives. So it's going to take a lot of effort from both Republicans and Democrats uh, to keep this uh, at the forefront because we're going to need to have the patience to, to be in there for the long run. And you know, as you've seen, too, I mean, we've seen a dramatic shift <clears throat> even in the administration. And now I see you know, reports that we may be sending Western fighters uh, over to, to Ukraine. Uh, that's a right. huge uh, leap forward. You know, where, you know, not that long ago, we were concerned about sending MIGs over there because we didn't want to escalate you know, the crisis. So right. I think we're going to see uh, much more uh, high-tech weaponry uh, on, uh, over there. And I think it's just going to take a lot of leadership uh, from both sides to make sure that we continue to pay attention to this crisis and explain to the American people what it means for us. That's, that's what's really been missing from all this. And I think I mentioned this several months ago during the President's State of the Union address. It's something that he missed. And we have to be able to explain to the American people why this endangers our freedom, our security, our democracy. Uh, Indeed. Yes, you may. Yeah, I'd like to jump in and point out one other thing. I totally agree with Mike. But, you know, on the Senate side, regardless of which side uh, has the majority, you've got both leaders who are four square behind Ukraine. Uh, We know Pelosi certainly is. What McCarthy might do if McCarthy is indeed voted in as speaker or some other person might do is more of a question mark. And I think that's one to watch. You've got elements within the Republican Party that really don't want to spend the money for reasons. Let's keep it at home and isolationist instincts. And then you've got elements on the progressive side of the Democratic Party that feel the same way for other reasons. And so. That's going to be one to watch how the House breaks on this, 
and how the majority, if the Republicans are the majority in the House break on this, is going to be really, really important to watch. Uh, in, 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 indeed, uh, indeed it will. Uh, Jim, uh, you've been uh, very patient. Uh, and I want to ask you uh, about uh, Lavrov's comments, right? I mean, he basically said exactly what we expected him to say, that Moscow's war aims go far beyond Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, does, does his statement change anything as far as you're concerned, especially how we need to behave? That we, we are stepping up in a way uh, but the administration, you know, is still worried about the nuclear element. The Russians continue to saber rattle, write some stories about the um, uh, the nuclear torpedo, nuclear powered uh, Poseidon weapon. That is not a new uh, weapon. It dates to the cold uh, since the Cold War, although now a much smaller version of it. Patrick raised that in our pre uh, discussion. Um, right. I mean, so Russians are constantly messaging from from that standpoint. What, what does does Lavrov's statement change anything? You know, I don't think it changes anything uh, at all, except for those who haven't been listening uh, to the to the <laughs> Russians. And suddenly now they are. And they might go, well, this is new, uh, but it's not new. And in fact, the, the earliest moments of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, if you remember, he they, he came in at five different uh, routes into uh, Ukraine uh, with the idea of taking Kiev very quickly. And, uh, you know, there, there was no intent. Uh, at the very beginning at all to keep things, uh, uh, you know, focused on the Donbass. And that only was plan B once his broader uh, plan ran into military problems. So what we're, what we're seeing, and, and, and they have been saying it, and the administration too, over the past week or so, they've been talking about uh, next steps. Uh, and so I think this is not, this is not new. Uh, I, I, will, I, I will say it's been interesting to me. I've gotten calls from the media and from the UK and other places um, where um, they, have, they have portrayed this as something new. Uh, and it's like, no. And I think what it is is people who are not following this closely uh, on a daily basis, uh, th this might sound new coming out of Lavrov, but it is absolutely not new. Uh, and it is reason for us to do just what, um, uh, you know, has been said over the past few minutes is going to the Hill and making sure people understand in Europe as well, that there's not going to be an easy out here where uh, once the Donbass is, you know, the Russians have gone in and feel they've occupied fully the Donbass, uh, that they're going to say, okay, we've got what we want and we're going to, we're, we're, it's over now. Uh, it's, it's not, it absolutely isn't. And so, um, so I think uh, for those who find this something new or new to them, they need to understand that this is what we've been hearing all along. The actions the Russians have taken have, have underlined that this is what they were gonna do. And uh, the timeline is a long one for the Russians. Maybe this is something that is gonna take a while because of the uh, military uh, stubbornness right. of the Ukrainians. So this might take a while, but it's like a boa constrictor, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be a squeeze slowly, slowly, slowly until the prey is, is finished. And that's that Russian tactic. And there was that great piece in the New York Times by Tatiana Stanoveya uh, of the Carnegie Center uh, discussing that actually Putin thinks that he's winning and could win in part by collapsing Western governments using energy uh, as a weapon. To, to that uh, end, uh, Jim, it, it was a fascinating uh, week, right? On the one hand, Ursula von der Leyen and, and EU leaders saying, hey, this guy is using energy as a weapon. We've got to do a lot more to make sure that we're stable. Turn thermos, you know, like, you know, the governments still have to do a lot more, but at least getting folks' attention focused on it, figuring out alternate sources of energy. Um, 
you know, the next day uh, after this declaration, uh, Russia decide, decided on Thursday, okay, well, we're going to reopen gas. You know, it was just maintenance uh, on the pipeline that was done, right? So Putin is basically messaging to everybody, I'm the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. What's Talk to us a little bit about the messaging, but more specifically, what are you hearing from your European friends on how they're going to negotiate this period? And Dove, I want to get your sense. Isn't this a, you know kind of Joe Biden's moment to have a Berlin airlift equivalent so the United States actually gets energy en masse to the Europeans uh, to be able to, 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 safeguard, uh, to, to safeguard them as winter approaches? Jim, start us off and, and Dove would love your take. Well, I think you're absolutely right to uh, to talk about talk about it that way and to focus on the energy aspect of it, because that really is the Achilles uh, heel that Putin is betting on. He is really betting on his energy weapon, which is turning on and off that the, the gas, uh, you know, the uh, you know, the pipeline, as we've seen, that really is what he feels will win the day for him or at least buy him time uh to uh, slowly squeeze uh, the Ukrainians as European nations falter during the winter time or as their economies go into recession because they can't get the gas. And I will say that right now, the, the major actor in this is the European Union. And they have been, to their credit, they have been meeting constantly at various levels to come up with ways in which to uh, not only find alternative sources, but also to deal with uh, conserving energy so right now and filling uh, gas reservoirs. And both the, the EU is doing it as well as individual nations are. A lot of the uh, uh, energy ministers in EU member nations are going to Algeria or uh, all over where there are sources of energy. They're going to try to make bilateral deals to diversify their source of energy. And in Germany, particularly, uh, there was some good articles uh, today talking about what small towns are doing in Germany in terms of, of lowering um, uh, energy usage. A lot of things that reminded me, quite frankly, of what we did back during the oil, uh, uh, the oil crisis uh, that we had back in the 70s. Um, they're doing a lot of things, but the, the problem is that the dependency is so great, particularly in right. Germany, that, they're, that, that there's not a lot they're going to be able to do in the near term. They're going to, looks like they're going to bring back some of the coal-fired plants. Uh, they're going to probably keep open some of the nuclear facilities that they were going to close. Uh, so there are, there's a lot of extreme things being done, particularly in Germany, to keep things going. Because in Germany, their economy, the, the uh, industry, depends on this gas they can't flip a switch, uh, you know, and, and switch to solar. Uh, you know, they, they're going to have to, uh, this next uh, winter, it's not just cold houses, but also cold industries and the recession that would follow from that. As far as an airlift, and Dove, I know we'll talk on that, but I, what I'll say just to start off is that- well, and, and I didn't mean airlift per se, right? I meant like oh, yeah, some yeah, form yeah. where the United States figures no. out how to get them energy in vast quantities That's right. very quickly. That's yeah. right. No, and, and people have been talking about that kind of thing in terms of LNG, uh, that uh, we can get LNG over there, that we can increase our uh, output of oil and get it to, you know, that we can do this kind of thing. And, I, uh, and I'm not an expert in that, but, but the LNG aspect has been talked about for a number of years now, and, and the facilities just aren't present in Europe and the capacity, I believe, in the United States to produce a lot of LNG to be exported isn't necessarily uh, at, at a level where Europe is gonna need it in the short, medium term. And so 
I, I think it's some type of Manhattan Project, you could call it, uh, where the U.S. really goes and tries to help out. I think we're trying to find ways we can do it, but there is just no silver bullet. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so people, I would say, whether it's the European Union or it's individual EU member nations, European nations, uh, and the United States, everyone is is really doubling down now, trying to find ways to to get at the problem. And and there and it's and there is not, as I said, not a silver bullet, but certainly there's a lot of work being done to try to combine lots of individual things to at least get us over the hump of the next year. Dove, um, you know our. Uh, and, and maybe, Michael, uh, very quickly, because there's so much stuff that's happening in Asia that I want to get Patrick in this. And Patrick, thanks for your uh, pr- patience. I'm going to ask you a transition uh, question in a moment. But really quickly, Dove, you know, your sense on whether or not, and, and folks you're talking in the administration are working along this lines of being able to sort of quickly address these energy needs. And Michael, whether lawmakers are talking about whether or not we actually need to I don't want to say subsidize, but actually make the resources available for us to be able to maybe divert sea lift ships uh, or other kinds of large scale capacity to help, uh, you know, or or financial resources to rent the ships necessary to move them, because in part, the U.S. merchant fleet is not uh, is not that big. Right. Dove, start us off and Michael really quickly. A a couple of things. Remember, Biden is being pulled in in several different directions. On the one hand, clearly, uh, there is no silver bullet. Jim is right. But to the extent he can find some uh, lesser kinds of bullets. Yeah, he, he would like to do that. I suspect that was really why he went and fist bumped Mohammed bin Salman. Note that he didn't get any any uh, commitment at all uh, from the Saudis who are going to have their meeting in August. Uh, he he may have wanted Russians. a handshake. He may have wanted a handshake and a hug. Well, look, I mean, they're going to be that he said we're, we're, we're going to stay with the OPEC plus uh, Russia. And so he didn't get anything there. Uh, they were betting, obviously, very heavily on the come that if they could get a deal with Iran, Iran would pump up its oil. But it's going to be selling oil anyway, just not to them. It's going to be to India and China. Uh, and so that hasn't worked out terribly well to increase production at home isn't as simple as as it might be thought, you know, gas uh, pipelines and and, uh, uh, extracting oil from uh, areas that are nature preserves. That's not going to happen quickly either. And that's and that's just one concern. Then he's being pulled not just by that. He's being pulled by environmentalists who are telling him, don't you dare do uh, basically expand our domestic production at the expense of the environment. That's one area. And then, and, and remember, the Supreme Court just didn't make life easier for the environmentalists. So they're doubling down. And the other group that's giving him a hard time, of course, are the human rights crowd. So Europe may be buying uh, gas from Azerbaijan and, uh, and other sorts of uh, countries that are run by autocratic rulers. But as you saw with the whole Khashoggi thing and how that affected Biden, uh, that's not necessarily going to happen here. And remember, again, what happens in the elections? He's got to get his base out. But the base is environmentalist. The base is human rights oriented. And the base doesn't care if we produce more oil for Europeans. So given all of that, I'm not sure there are many bullets at all, silver or otherwise. Um, And I, I should point out, right, I mean, when people wonder how Biden is polling below Trump, it's because Trump's base actually stuck with Trump virtually no matter what. 
whereas uh, Biden's base is, is not, and the progressives are, are moving in another direction. Patrick, you've been extraordinarily patient, so uh, you're going to get bombarded with a whole series of, of uh, questions, uh, and I, I will end it uh, by going uh, to uh, Dove and maybe Jim uh, to talk about the Rogues uh, Summit and, and what they saw. You know, since, the, since before the start of this conflict, um, we've been uh, getting your take on um, the Chinese relationship with the Russians in this war, the support they're giving, their limitless friendship. What, what are we seeing in terms of that uh, in the past couple of weeks on how um, the, the Chinese are trying to navigate this uh, without necessarily um, running afoul of Washington? Although Nancy Pelosi, uh, right, news reports that Nancy Pelosi will visit Taiwan and that got a very furious reaction from uh, from the Chinese. So these things actually are all tied together. Give us your sense on what is going on uh, in Beijing. And I have an economic follow-up question to that because the country's economy is in dire straits. Dove has written articulately about it and so have you. And you know that's gonna play a factor and may play a factor in this as well. But take us sort of like in the Ukraine war context, where are we now? Russia and China remain joined in terms of pushing back on Western rules-based uh, system uh, in our narrative, um, and they want very much to um, bust the U.S. leadership and power. So that they're absolutely um, joined at the hip on this question, but they differ in terms of their approach, and Russia has been much more disruptive and much more willing to use overt force. The fear is that that may be changing. The combination of uh, Xi Jinping thinking his time is running short, even if he has you know five to 15 years left in power, who knows? Um, but also um, his confidence, the confidence that he feels uh, must be grasped now if China's going to seize this, this historic moment as he's talked about these profound changes. So um, that's why there's so much fear that uh, what's happened in Ukraine could happen in Taiwan, even though they're different uh, theaters and different histories. Um, the, the fear is that conflict uh, may, may break out and that deterrence may fail. Um, so, the, you know, as you're concerned about forceful unification being imposed on Taiwan, um, the threats are continuing to grow out of Beijing on this issue. And so here you have Speaker Pelosi um, hoping to organize uh, a delayed trip that was going to take place in the spring, uh, maybe uh, take place next month. And she's getting uh, signals from both the, the Pentagon and I think the White House that maybe now is not the right time, partly because President Biden is supposed to be having a, a face-to-face uh, virtual meeting with Xi Jinping, or at least a phone call here uh, by the end of this month. And I don't think he wants the Taiwan visit uh, to come before that. Um, but, but you know, Nancy Pelosi, along with other members of Congress, have been trying to go to Taiwan to signal American reassurance. No different, really, from President Biden's, uh, you know, occasional uh, focus on, on his own commitment, right, to the defense of Taiwan if invaded. Um, and I think um, now the Chinese are pushing back on this uh, vigorously, as they've always pushed back. They have their ambassador went to Aspen this week to talk about the hollowing out of the one China policy. That's a great line for the Chinese propaganda because, uh, one, the Chinese believe it, and two, it actually uh, praise upon one of the seams in policy-making circles that are we being too confrontational? Do we need to be more concerned about the dignity of China here and, and provoking them rather than deterring them? We may be provoking them into action. Um, and the Chinese know that's one of the seams. So they're pressing on that seam uh, right there with that. Um, 
I think the um, you know Taiwan issue in terms of deterrence as well. The Chinese are um, signaling, uh, talking about a new nuclear-powered long-range torpedo that is kind of a mini version of the Russian Poseidon. We've seen this signaled in in American uh, government policy statements. For instance, Under Secretary of State Bonnie Jenkins last year talked about the fact that the Chinese are working on uh, undisclosed uh, nuclear-powered capabilities. Um, and now we have reports in the South China Morning Post this today talking about exactly this system that could be a swarm uh, underwater drone that could be fired from any platform anywhere in the world and, and be long range uh, and it's, and it's um, nuclear propelled. So it's, it goes on. It's a very dangerous system, uh, potentially for an ambushing American uh, sort of redeployment uh, in defense of any, any country, but especially of, of uh, over Taiwan. Um, and and one of the and just just to say in the Russian iteration of the weapon, uh, which is one of the reasons why I mean I'm now I'm showing myself dating myself you know uh, that Admiral Gorshkov was not as crazy about it is that it was supposed to go up rivers estuaries right and also be, be you know a, a very clandestine way of having a nuclear bomb go off short of an ICBM that can more easily be tracked right I mean so that's the reason why it's a particularly a dangerous weapon from uh, 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 whether in a Russian context or in a Chinese context. And I think I may have screwed it up earlier in how I was characterizing it, right? Because this is a capability uh, the Russians have talked about for a long time and invested in. And now it's new that it's also coming at us now from a Chinese, uh, Chinese perspective. So suggesting that there is some cooperation and partnership, certainly, uh, exactly on these that. kind of capabilities. Yeah. I mean, there has been a, a closer military technological relationship. And so People are saying China and Russia are not integrated in terms of their military, so it's not a, a real alliance. But if this alignment is getting close enough where they're swapping technologies and technological knowledge for military capabilities, as this suggests, um, that's getting close to an alliance, even if they're not going to be integrated right. in a force in, in a scenario. Let, let me uh, let's go into a little bit of a, 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 a lightning round because I want to get to uh, Sri Lanka in a minute. But um, economic uh, challenges, COVID still raging. Uh, the answer for, from the government is you lock down, uh, even if it's Shanghai or any, any place else. Um, and yet we're seeing economic cracks. Um, you know, before we recorded, uh, Dove raised once again, and or I think you did, the real estate market, which is highly problematic, right? I mean, a lot of these smaller state uh, municipalities in China make money by selling real estate to commercial outfits. It's a bit of a Ponzi scheme. Um, you know, where are we on the country's economic health? Because that's the sort of thing that drives external adventurism sometimes, right? It moves timetables that we may think, you know, we think we're buying ourselves time, but then events, dear boy, events. What, what, what does this mean uh, economically? Uh, and, and what concerns you as somebody who watches it closely? Well, the economy is absolutely vital for the legitimacy of the CCP and for political stability. And as Xi Jinping heads into this 20th Party Congress this fall, um, political stability is very much on his mind. So he's, he's putting on his resume that, look, I went to Hong Kong and I suppressed uh, the, the crisis. I went to Xinjiang and brought order. He's actually putting those uh, as achievements on his uh, sort of list. He's, and he's beating back any Western criticism, uh, including lobbying the UNHCR about a report that they're supposed to report on uh, Xinjiang uh, and the lockdowns there. Um, so you add COVID lockdowns being very unpopular. You have 0.4% uh, growth the second quarter in China, so almost no growth in the economy. 
you have a, uh, a continued crackdown on big tech uh, as symbolized by this $1.2 billion fine against DD, uh, uh, you know, the ride sharing giant. Um, and they claim that it's because of security risk, but that's not security risks as we would define them for data privacy. These are security risks to the party. Um, you know, so that's why the, that's what's driving the big tech crackdown for Xi Jinping. And then, yes, on top of that, you've now got the continue, continuation of even an enlarging uh, property fear. Um, and that was, you know, 70% of the middle class of China have their wealth tied up in the property. Um, Evergrande is just one, again, one uh, company emblematic of the fact that there's been this huge uh, toxicity and in, in, in debt um, that could explode. Um, and Evergrande went bankrupt at the end of last year, and it's now being restructured in ways that they're just starting to reveal. What we're seeing is a growing protest throughout China, um, you know, still relatively minor, but, but they've been noticed in Beijing and they've been noticed by the CCP over the banks that are freezing deposits uh, on mortgages. And this is this has really got the attention of the CCP, and that's why they're going to now, I think, uh, prime the pump here and make sure that they uh, do not have a growing protest movement over mortgages right. in the property sector as they head into this 20th Party Congress. Those are short-term fixes, though. There are still here, you know, serious questions, and I think the point on this, while I go up for the security uh, sort of community, is that's why the intelligence community in general fears that after the 20th Party Congress, all the constraints are going to come off Xi Jinping and that he may need right. uh, more national security uh, sort of tests to, to prove the mettle and the legitimacy of the party. Uh, and uh, very br briefly, what does uh, Sri Lanka mean? A place where China had made a lot of investment, it's completely imploded, leadership in uh, chaos. What what does what does what, you know, because a lot of people will look at it and, and maybe don't really know what to make of it. Well, it proves that the Belt and Road Initiative has been less successful than we feared, uh, that many feared, um, and that, um, you know, investing in co-opting certain leadership uh, may not pay off because that leadership may have to run out of the country. Um, but at a more serious level, going back to sort of Jim's point about, um, you know, energy in Europe. So even wealthy Europe is going to face possibly tripling, quadrupling energy prices in a winter of discontent, as one Irish economist put it. Uh, to me this week. And I think if that happens uh, in Europe, what happens to the global south of which Sri Lanka's part? That's where you know, the, the pain will be growing. And that's really what led to these protests on the street that threw uh, the regime out. Um, and those are going to grow elsewhere too. So we can have a lot of chaos. And when there's political chaos and tumult in various countries of the world, uh, and we're absolutely obsessed with conflict and uh, inflation and other issues, um, bad things can happen because dictators can take actions that could be truly detrimental to international security. Um, uh, we've got uh, about three minutes left, and uh, Dove and Jim are going to uh, share on, on on this one. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the Erdogan Putin Khamenei uh, summit in uh, uh, Tehran. Obviously, Putin uh, and Khamenei. Uh, very close, right? Khamenei supports the Ukraine invasion. A little bit of a different message from Recep Tayyip Erdogan, obviously uh, leading a NATO nation. Dove, I want to start off with you and get your take, not just on the meeting, uh, but the notion of an agreement that would release Ukrainian grain, the Turks suggesting that an agreement is ready to be signed, they were saying could be signed as early uh, as Friday, uh, with Russian and Ukrainian officials saying that talks would continue, and the two have been discussing this for some time. Uh, clearly, this fits into almost the oil narrative as well, that Putin is putting out, hey, I, I'm not that bad of a guy. Uh, I'm pretty reasonable. I'm willing to grant uh, concessions. 
from your sense, what's this all about and what does this agreement mean, assuming that it's an actual agreement and just not just empty talk? Well, first of all, we know that uh, the Iranians are going to be sending uh, drones to Russia because uh, Putin needs them badly. He's lost a lot of them. That's one big deal right there. Putin has released uh, oil and now he's got this gas deal, but it isn't really Putin. This is all about Erdogan, in my view. It had very little to do with the Tehran summit unless they, the two of them, Putin and Erdogan, were talking on the side, which I assume they were. But the deal now is going to release grain to a lot of to millions of people in lots of countries. And quite frankly, Erdogan, the authoritarian who's running for office and is behind in the polls, could well be a nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize. Putin may have his own reasons. You know, I'm the good guy. Look at me. It's the bad Ukrainians, blah, blah, blah. But from Erdogan's perspective, this has just put him up there with somebody who can actually get a deal done, uh, unlike, for instance, our own president or many of the Western European leaders who've been trying to do this for months and couldn't do it. There is that that feeling that with gas resumption uh, with this, uh, that that uh, the Russians are trying to change the narrative, that Putin is trying to change the narrative, that he's actually the good guy in this, who's more interested in people around the world than their own leaders are. I think that's right. Remember, uh, Putin is a master at changing narratives. He'll do anything to change the narrative. He knows that uh, there are many countries that are trying to paint him as some kind of isolated uh, dictator like the uh, Iranians. And his answer is, no, I'm not. I'm the good guy. Uh, It was the Ukrainians that mined the uh, Black Sea to begin with. And together with Erdogan, we worked out a deal. And the Ukrainians, of course, had to go along. That's going to be his narrative. And Erdogan's narrative is going to be, I'm the new Teddy Roosevelt. But there are some things, you know, you saw the picture of the, of the three of them holding hands and uh, above their heads and all that. But there are some real problems still. Turkey already occupies part of Syria. Uh, they, everybody expects them to go further. The Turks consider the Syrian Kurds uh, to be part of the PKK, whether or not they really are. Uh, They have plans to move in. That is a problem for the Russians and the Iranians. Um, The Russians and the Iranians are competing for oil exports to China. They've got to figure that one out. This is not as simple as people think. This is not an axis of evil. Anyway, you couldn't have an axis of evil when part of the axis is part of NATO. Um, And finally, one thing that is interesting is that Syria totally broke off relations with Ukraine. And that shows that the Syrians have decided that uh, they cannot do anything that will alienate either Putin or the Iranians. And that's a major factor as well, because there are still people here in Israel, where I am, who still dream of somehow working something out with Assad. Uh, I wouldn't bet the family farm on it. Indeed, as you as you sit on the bluffs and look down at Haifa Harbor, uh, just an absolutely stunning uh, view. Uh, Jim, you've got 30 seconds. Just want to get your take on this as well before we part for the week. I just want to add on to what Dove said, and I think his view about those three meeting uh, is absolutely right on. But this is being all happening in the context of a real leadership vacuum in Europe. Italy right now, don't take your eyes off of Rome and what's happening now in terms of the collapse of the Italian government. It's going to have a major impact here because of dealing with uh, re- the recession and the energy crisis and this these problems further in Europe in terms of leadership. Look, it's happening in London, um, in Berlin. 
there's there is in Paris. Uh, th- these are these are very important European capitals who play major roles in the economy of Europe and the and then the running of the European Union, which is under a terrible pressure now because of the energy crisis and a potential recession which could happen there. So there are there is a leadership problem. Uh, I won't say vacuum, but there's just political unrest and turmoil in various countries uh, that are very important in Europe. And uh, and so we're seeing now a, uh, a, a, a real storm clouds for the wintertime as this leadership in Europe, as well as here in Washington, are going to come under a lot of pressure. And, and that pressure in some ways will be dictated by Moscow. What yes, of course, Dove, go ahead. Recession in Europe recession in the United States is going to have an impact on Chinese exports. That's going to make life even more difficult for Mr. Xi. Um, in which, which I will, uh, in general, be inclined to welcome. If it does not, then drive an autocrat to do something that is uh, calamitous. And that's one of the big problems always with this. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Hope you guys have uh, a great weekend, a great week. Uh, and, uh, and just to note to our listeners, uh, we are taking next week off. Uh, and so uh, we will resume the following week uh, with uh, the roundtable. Thank you very much to all of you. You've uh, earned uh, a rest. And uh, Dove, many, many congratulations to your granddaughter. She is an absolute sports juggernaut. Let's, let's, let's give her a little bit of attention and some extraordinary scores in the Maccabee games that she's been uh, racking up. Well, thank you. The latest one was 110 to 30 over Australia. And, and we should note she's a basketball player and very, very talented. Like her father, like her grandfather. No, like the father. The father was all met in Washington. The grandfather's a whole other story. Uh, and and we're and and as everybody tracks the five Zakheim boys, this would be Roger Zakheim's daughter. That's correct. And Roger was all met honorable mention twice in the D.C. area. So he, she's Isn't- got his gene. terrific, uh, an athletically inclined family. Everybody, thanks very, very much. Really appreciate it. Again, have a great weekend uh, and a great weekend. Looking forward to having you guys back on again soon. Thanks so much.